Well, just kind of as, as an opener, I'll share a little story with you. It was uh, 1979, and the Iranian Revolution had resulted in a very hardline Islamic system. Some of you might remember that. Um, at that time, over the next 20 years, Christians in that country would face enormous opposition and persecution. And if you were a missionary at that time, you were kicked out of the country. If you evangelized in that country, you would have been arrested and you would have been fined. If you owned a Bible, you had to hide it because it was banned all over the country. Um, It was even reported that several pastors were killed during that time. And so many Iranian Christians at that time feared that the Iranian church would completely die out. But just the opposite happened. Instead of the church being wiped out, Christianity grew exponentially. It was amazing. Even amidst hostility and persecution. And so it begs the question, why? Why, in a country that is primarily Muslim, did uh, people come to Christ? And there's two observations that can be made. The first one is that it was clearly evident that there's a commitment to the saving gospel and to Jesus Christ. And the second observation that can be made, kind of like what we learned last week, God had many people and still has many people in that country whom he chooses to save. And so we come away just very encouraged because today it is reported that there are more Iranians that have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the last 13 centuries combined. It's incredible. Um, It's estimated that in 1979, you know, maybe there was about 500 Christians. But today it's reported that the number of Christians in Iran is without a doubt in the order of magnitude of several hundreds of thousands, and maybe even be going, growing beyond a million. So encouraging. And that's the work that God is doing in the hearts of those in Iran. It's extraordinary, and it really should motivate us to rejoice and to remain confident, right, in his word, especially as we consider what Jesus told us in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he is going to build the church. Christ is building his church. That is a promise And even when we suffer for doing what is right, Christ is still building his church. And so today, um, in the text before us, what we're going to talk about is we're going to kind of have a front row seat, really, um, as God continues to build his church in Ephesus. And we're going to see that through the teaching of the word. We're going to see it through how God blesses the word. And we're going to see it even though there's opposition to the word at times, right? Right? Um, So I thought it would be good to just start with some historical data. I think it's important for you to learn a little bit about the city of Ephesus. We need a good understanding of a real city in a real time where real people lived, right? Um, That was a church that was planted by Paul, and there was lots of persecution and opposition going on. And so we need to be encouraged that even though Paul faced opposition from Jew and Gentile alike, it didn't thwart the spreading and growth of the word of God. And when we have a better understanding of culture, you've got to add the culture because we always come to scripture sometimes with that American mindset, right? When you have an understanding of culture, it helps you to interpret scripture better. Um, So I'm hoping to kind of bridge the gap a little bit there. But first of all, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Maybe some of you have traveled there. Um, It's along the Aegean coast, 
And that map that we were given, I'm using it as a background because it, it was really, really helpful because you can see that, um, that, that the, the, the Aegean Sea, it's just like an elongated bay, and it's um, in the Mediterranean Sea between Europe and Asia. And so during the time that Paul was there, um, Ephesus was actually the fourth largest city in the uh, Roman Empire, and they estimate that there must have been about 250,000 people there. So that's like a metropolitan city. That's quite huge. And um, I think the picture that I have up here, let me just take a look, that picture of Ephesus right there, um, it, it's surrounded by the Aegean Sea, and it's, it's off in the distance, but interestingly, um, you can't get into Ephesus that way anymore. The, the port there near the Aegean Sea has been silted up you know, over time. And so it became a kind of a problem area um, because that's the way that they would often, that is actually the way that Paul would have entered the city and exited the city as well. So let's learn a little bit about what these people in Ephesus really worshipped. Ephesus was actually known throughout the ancient world as the temple keeper of the goddess Artemis. Go ahead and go to the next one. Here you go. There's Artemis. Okay. She was a grotesque, uh, multi-breasted figure, really. She was supposed to symbolize uh, sexual fertility. This is who they worshipped. I just wanted to give you a visual. This is what Paul walked into. And a lot of the so-called worship that, uh, that went on in her temple, really, honestly, was nothing more than just sex worship. Not too unlike our culture today, because it just gripped the city. This was a huge thing. And, um, you know, because Paul was in Ephesus for a couple of years, um, something interesting that he would have witnessed, he would have seen um, this this pilgrimaging to Ephesus that a lot of these people that worshipped her, every year they would have come into the city of Ephesus to worship Artemis. And he must have thought that was so strange because it was really similar to what you see when the Jews would come to Jerusalem once a year, you know, and so he probably thought that was just weird. Um, but that idolatry didn't stop the Lord from doing a work in the hearts of these people and really growing his word with power. It's exciting. Amazingly, but perhaps not surprisingly, within 300 years of Christianity spreading throughout these areas, this kind of idolatry completely vanished. See if we have the next picture. Yeah, you see the little remnants. That is the remnants of the temple for Artemis. That was once the seventh, um, I don't know, wonder of the world. Not much left. (laughs) It was never rebuilt. Uh, Temples like that were demolished over time. And this practice of idolatry kind of just vanished. It vanished over time. And that should encourage our hearts and remind us that when we are faithful with the message of the gospel, God in his kindness will use it to penetrate the hearts of those in the darkest of places, which Paul actually reminded the believers of in Ephesus And reminded us as well um, from Ephesians 2, he says, and you were dead, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. But God, right? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So rest assured that Christianity went forward in Ephesus And it continues to move forward in places like Iran, in California, all over the world, even in places like we just heard about. The spread of the word is not hindered by persecution. 
um, or even suffering of believers. In fact, sometimes the persecution of believers is the very means that God will use uh, to spread uh, his word. And you can just ask people like James and Aaron Coates. Although I got an updated message today. It looks like uh, one of the leaders in our group says that James Coates is going to be released. Praise the Lord. I'm, I'm glad to, I'm, I'm praising God for that. But even as he was, and still continues today at this moment, to sit in jail awaiting trial or being, waiting to be released, God has allowed his wife, Erin, to have this tremendous ministry. She is being interviewed by many since James was jailed, and she has a consistent gospel message, and it's just encouraging. But that brings us to our first point, which is the teaching of the word. Now, I want to help you keep in mind as we kind of seek to understand some of the events happening here that it had been about 20 years since Jesus had been crucified. So it was common for Paul and his companions to run into believers of God who didn't know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are what commentators often call the Old Testament era of belief and the New Testament era of belief. Okay, and so we we got a glimpse of that last week uh, when we observed Paul keeping that Old Testament vow even though he was now a Christian, right? And so today we're going to see two more instances of that. We're going to see it in Apollos, and we're going to see it in the 12 uh, disciples, and just really the profound impact that the teaching of the word had on their own life. And in the picture there, what you see, that's that's called the Mithridates Gate. And I wanted you to see that because that is the very gate. I'm just so amazed that these buildings are still around, but that is the very gate that... Paul and Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla, um, people that we read about during this time, would have traveled through many, many times because it takes him into the marketplace where he would have sold his tent. So on the other side of that is the marketplace. We call it the Agora. But anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about Aquila and Priscilla, and I'm just going to go ahead and read now um, Acts 18, verses 24 to 28. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an um, an Alexandrian by birth, sorry, an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So while Paul was en route on his third missionary journey, revisiting churches, we talked about how he just had a heart for strengthening and discipleship. Um, there is a man by the name of Apollos that arrived into Ephesus. And what we learn about him here from what we just read is that he was eloquent. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. um, And he had taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But Luke tells us something in verse 25 that's important. He tells us that actually uh, Apollos had an imperfect faith. He had an imperfect faith because he only knew the baptism of John. So what does he mean by that? 
Well, um, Luke could be helping us to think back to what was been recorded in Matthew, eight, uh, Matthew 3, when John the Baptist, we know about him, he was Jesus' cousin, right? Um, when he came on the scene before Jesus' earthly ministry, and it was at that time that John the Baptist began to preach Jews to repent or to turn from their sin because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so the message that the Jews would have understood was one of repentance and one of pointing people towards Christ as the Messiah. So pointing people towards Christ. And the many Jews who were being baptized by John were admitting inwardly that they needed to become people of God genuinely. Okay, Apollos understood this well. He understood this well, that John's baptism was a sign of repentance and a looking forward to the Messiah's coming. But he didn't have the full understanding of the gospel yet, right? A Christian's baptism, on the other hand, is really more about identifying with the Messiah and looking back at a commitment that, that we've made to Christ who has already come. So Apollos grew up hearing about the true God of the scriptures. He did, and he heard that Jesus was the Messiah, and he believed it. But apparently, he had not heard that the Messiah, who is Christ, had risen from the grave on the third day. According to Pastor John, he says he may not have even been aware that there was a pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's very possible. But either way, uh, Luke is depicting Apollos as an Old Testament saint who had a deficiency in the message that he preached. He only knew the baptism of John, and his understanding of Christian baptism was inadequate. So he had an imperfect faith. But his life is about to change, right? Because God used this dear couple, Aquila and Priscilla, to help Apollos understand the rest of the story more fully. And according to verse 26 there, we learn that um, the couple heard Apollos. He spoke boldly. Um, that caught their attention. And because he only knew the baptism of John, uh, they courageously and they respectfully took him aside. And they probably talked with him in the privacy of their own home, is what most people think. And they expounded on the way of Christ more fully to him. And I just come away from that. I just love how God uses ordinary people in the church, lay people like Aquila and Priscilla, who Luke actually characterized as believers who were very grounded in their faith. That's encouraging. And God used them time and time again as an instrument in his hand to build the church. That gives us a lot of hope. They were just faithful. Um, And so after, you know, Apollos humbly, if you picked up on that, received their instruction according to the rest of that narrative, his ministry just took off. His ministry took off, and immediately we find him traveling across the Aegean Sea. He's heading to Corinth now, and he's teaching the word, and he's greatly helping other believers. I mean, his ministry just took off. Um, And now we understand that Apollos now had a complete faith. He had a complete faith in Christ. Now he had the right message. He had the right message, and as he began to teach it more fully and more accurately, the gospel message just continued to spread and even prevail, even in the most remotest parts of the earth. So encouraging. So as we move into Acts 19, um, what we learn, um, just as an introduction in verse 1, that Paul's um, travel narrative is being completed. It began in verse 24 of, of Acts 18, but now... 
um, it's completed, and now we begin to meet another group of people referred to as disciples. And the information that Luke is going to include about these disciples is important because it's going to help you as a reader to understand the difference between a true disciple of Jesus Christ and someone who is yet a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's make sure we got the right picture. Yeah, good. Um, Okay, so let's go ahead and read 1 to 10 now together. It happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. And he entered, after that, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly, For three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, you know, the first... What we observe there is the first way that Luke helps our understanding is really through spiritual questions, really good spiritual questions that he asked of the disciples. And so you saw the first one. It's in verse 2, and he's asking them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Um, And from that question, it just kind of appears that Paul's a little bit unsure about what's going on here. And rightly so, because when a person says that they're a disciple, it doesn't always mean that they're a believer, right? Right? In fact, the term disciple, it's used many, many, many times um, in the Bible, and it's, tan- it's not always tantamount with Christian. Rather, as we learned in our lesson, it really just means to be a learner or a follower. Um, so a disciple, even someone who calls themselves a disciple of Christ, is not necessarily a true believer. And we run into a similar problem today, don't we? We really do. I mean, some people think that just because they're born in America— or just because they've been born into a Christian family, um, that they're a believer of Jesus Christ. But just because America was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, and just because people have the privilege of being born into a Christian family, it doesn't make you Christian. It doesn't. In fact, no one, no matter where you're from or what family you were born into, can ever say, I've been a Christian my whole life. I hear people say that sometimes. I'm like, really? Really? (laughs) <laughs> okay, but the, the question is why? Why is that? Well, we have to go back to the scriptures, and we know from Romans 3, we know from even what we studied last year, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, the truth is we're all, we all have been born as sinners and with a sinful nature that's against God and his way, and we know that to be true. I just want you to think back to your pre-salvation days. Am I right? I am, and we can just view the world around us, and we can see that that is true. But the good news is there's always hope for a sinner. We know that that's found in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. So if you are a true disciple of Christ, 
be encouraged because at one point you did recognize your sinfulness and you did recognize from the scripture who Christ is and you repented of your sins and you turned from those sins towards Christ as, as your Lord and Savior. So a true disciple of Christ is not only a person who's committed to following in the footsteps of Christ or doing as he taught and lived, but it's also a person who has truly entered into a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's really where true discipleship begins, is in the relationship. And so like Paul, you know, we shouldn't assume. We shouldn't assume. We ought to have wisdom like Paul, and we ought to ask good questions, both of ourselves and others. We need to ask good questions to determine um, spiritual status. And if we're not sure, especially if we're not sure, but when Paul asked that question, I just want to say, I just thought their answer was rather peculiar. Their answer was rather peculiar in verse 2 because they said, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Um, That's really odd because the Holy Spirit was taught about in the Old Testament scriptures. (laughs) This would not have been foreign to them. I thought that was odd. And I realized sometimes it just comes down to how the original Greek is translated in English. Um, Sadly, our English Bibles don't always give the nuance of what's really being said there. And I was encouraged because when the Legacy Standard Bible came out, they actually are more reflective of what uh, the original Greek is actually saying. So I thought I would read that to you to see what, so you see what I'm uh, talking about. Um, let's see if I... Oh, did I not have it on there? Well, the new Legacy Bible that just came out, it translates that way, helping us to better understand that what's really going on here is that the 12 disciples were just unaware that the Holy Spirit was poured out. I thought... Oh, here we go. Okay, I do have it. Okay. So the translation in the LSB is, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. That's a lot different than what I read in my NAS. Okay. So they had not heard that the Holy Spirit had been received. And so sometimes it just comes down to how the Greek is translated. Um, And that, so that, that translation in and of itself just helps us to understand better that the 12 disciples were just unaware that the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost. Okay, there was just an unawareness. So then Paul asked them a follow-up question. Then what were you baptized into, right? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And so there's a similar thing going on here. Like Apollos, um, these Jewish disciples desired to be inwardly ready for the coming of the Messiah. But they were unacquainted with the gospel. They really only knew John's preparatory message, like Apollos in a lot of ways. Um, and I think another place you could go could be John 1, verses 24 to 34. You could read through that. That's when the Pharisees were questioning John the Baptist and asking him why he was baptizing people if he wasn't the Christ. And and John responds, this is just a paraphrase, but he responds to them by saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who, um, who you do not know. And he comes after me. He's a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I do not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. But he, Christ, baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John would have, taught, would have prepared the people like these disciples, but the message is still not a complete gospel, right? So out of love and concern, Paul says in verse 4, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him um, who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. In other words, John is, uh, sorry, 
In other words, Paul was saying that John's baptism was pointing forward so that people would have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. So if you believe John, then you ought to follow through with that and trust in Christ. (laughs) It's basically what he's seen. And we learn here that when they heard what Paul taught, they responded by believing what Paul said was right. And upon belief in that message, you know, it's not in there, but we would understand that there was a repentance of sin that would have gone on. There would have been a trusting in Christ's finished work. And then that would have been symbolized, which they do mention, um, in their newfound commitment through that believer's baptism, being baptized by water. And then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Did Luke just say they received the Holy Spirit after they were water baptized? Wait a minute, what's going on here <laughs> in the text? Um, you know, I, I, my, my mind just kind of goes crazy when I read things like that, so I had to do a little bit more study. And a lot of you probably may have asked that same question, um, but just know that like many things we've already come across in the book of Acts, you know, much that has happened is not normative in the Christian life today. Um, while it's true that the Spirit came at various times and in various ways throughout the Old Testament and even in the, in the book of Acts, what is normative today is that people receive the Holy Spirit upon belief in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. And what is consistent today is that the Holy Spirit is always, always a vital part of a person's commitment to Christ. And, of course, it's the mark of a true believer, Right? Another interesting observation that you might have made from verse 6 is noting that after the new disciples in Christ received the Holy Spirit, they responded by speaking in tongues and prophesying. These are miraculous gifts, and there's something we've come across before in the book of Acts. For example, you know, Acts 2 at Pentecost. Um, We learned that after the pouring out of God's Spirit on all the people, um, Peter began quoting the prophet uh, prophet Joel and said that your sons and daughters will prophesy. But the difficulty with using Acts 2 as a text, as a proof text, for prophesying today in the way that we think of it, is that in Acts itself, it's only a select few that even did it. You know, you could cross-reference with like Acts 11, Acts 13, 15, and 21. So it's really better to understand to prophesy in the broader sense of the word, meaning before Christ... God used certain people to mediate his message. Hebrews 1, verse 1 confirms that. When you look at that uh, one verse, um, it does say that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, did it in the prophets, did it through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But now, all of God's people are able to speak for God. Why is that? Because Christ, who was promised, has already come. And God's saving promises have already been revealed in him. So as an in Christ one, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're able to announce the fulfillment of his saving plan through the gospel, which is revealed to us through his word. Now, I've been reading a really good book. It's called The The Acts of the Risen Lord. And I want to give a little quote. Um, It's a really, really good book that just kind of speaks to all of this. Um, He says the same thing. Quote, The most obvious stated purpose for the coming of the Spirit in Acts is to empower God's people to speak for him, proclaiming salvation. The promised restoration of God's people is accomplished by the risen Lord Jesus through his sending of the Holy Spirit, who enables God's people to announce the message in order that others may hear 
respond, and also participate in God's saving promises, um, end quote. Additionally, what I would add is that as the word was spreading uh, throughout Asia and Europe, um, people were receiving the word, right? They're receiving the word, but they had never really heard that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. For example, those disciples. Um, And since many people, like the disciples, um, had never heard that the Spirit had come, they needed tangible proof. And God provided that through miraculous gifts like tongues and prophecy. But again, that's not normative today. That's just something that he did back then. In fact, if you do a deep study on 1 Corinthians 12 through uh, 13, you'll learn that there are permanent gifts that the Spirit of God has given to the church for the duration of the church's ministry, and they're imparted to every believer by God. You know, every single believer in this room has at least one gift. And the Holy Spirit um, gifts you to employ it, to use in the body of Christ, you know, to mutually edify one another. Um, Then there are other gifts that I believe were given for a special period of time and for a special purpose like tongues and prophecy. And Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 that these gifts were temporary and that they would eventually cease. And the reason why is because today we have the more sure word. We don't need them. We don't need them. Um, the The word of God is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is able to teach you. It is able to reprove you. It is able to correct you. It is able to encourage you. It is able to train you um, as just a believer in righteousness. So we don't need experience. We don't need to have that same experience. We have the more sure word. The picture up there I wanted to just kind of point out, it's kind of fun. Um, This is called Harbor Way. And this is probably, this is the entrance and the exit out of the city. This is probably where Paul talked to those disciples. I just wanted you to have a visual. It's kind of fun to see um, with your own eyes. But um, from this wonderful gospel encounter, according to verse 8, Paul enters Ephesus and he heads straight to the synagogue, as we read, where he had received an earlier invitation to return should he visit Ephesus once again. And so now, really, we have the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And we learned that for three months, he dialogued in the synagogue about the gospel um, as Christ, uh, as Messiah, with the aim of persuading them about the kingdom of God. But we learned that a lot of those hearts were growing awfully hard and hard and hard over time. And um, as, as Paul was teaching about the way, and so what did Paul do? He just took the ones who were receptive to the message and he headed to the school of Tyrannus. You know, he took them to college. Um, and I wanted, the picture that I have up there is the central part of the city where, um, yeah, the central part of the city where they think that maybe uh, the, the hall of Tyrannus was located is kind of in the central part. You know, we don't know much about this guy, Tyrannus. Uh, the only thing that we know about him is what his, his name means. It just means tyrant. He was a tyrant, apparently. But if you read extra-biblical literature, um, apparently Paul was allowed to teach these disciples in this uh, school of Tyrannus from the 5th to the 10th hour. That just means from 11 to 4, and I thought that was a glorious teaching schedule. I was like, I'd be down for that. Um, But you've got to keep in mind that Paul didn't, he was still tent-making. So he's teaching from 11 to 4. He's still making tents by hand, right, leatherworks, and... As we go forward in Acts, we're going to learn that Paul continued to, vi- to, to, visit, to visit disciples in the evenings from house to house. And this is a pretty taxing schedule that this guy kept. Amazing. 
Um, And God blessed those efforts because as Paul devoted himself to the teaching of the word through evangelism and discipleship, the word of God prevailed. And we learned that the word of God just grew stronger and stronger. And as a result, just so you know, a lot of, this is when a lot of those churches in the area began to emerge. This is when the church in Colossae came about. This is when the church in Perga came about. I mean, the word is just spreading all over the, the region. And that leads us to point number two, which is the blessing of the word. Um, and I think just for sake of time, I'm not going to go ahead and read the text, but I'm, I'm trusting that you've read it. But according to verses 11 to 12, as Paul was faithful with God's word in Ephesus, God blessed it by doing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand. And these miracles were not for the purpose of making Paul the center of attention. Rather, God used extraordinary miracles to authenticate Paul's message. And that's something, that's something that I didn't even mention before. Just so you know, um, Ephesus was renowned for being a center of, for magical practices. This was a normal, common, day-to-day thing you would have seen in the city back then. Um, and interestingly enough, apparently, there was a number of new Christians that were still involved in sorcery, right? And so God uses this interesting event to impress upon the people in Ephesus that as a true disciple of Christ, you can't serve two masters. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus is the one that tells us this, that either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. And in the case of some of these new believers in Ephesus, they were actually claiming Jesus as Lord of their life, but also continuing to practice the occult. Can't do that. So we find... Um, in you know, just 13 to 16, in verses 13 to 16, that there were these Jewish exorcists who went around Ephesus. They, were, they sought to drive out evil spirits in the unbelievers in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, those, char- those types of charlatans were all over. That was a common thing also, very popular in Ephesus, and they were really um, held in high esteem by a lot of people in the city. And in our text, Luke is kind of honing in on seven of them. Apparently, these are all brothers, Uh, sons uh, from a particular Jewish chief priest. And I was telling the ladies earlier that what Luke writes next is actually kind of comical because these sons of Sceva attempted to cast out a demon in Jesus's name, um, and it just utterly failed. (laughs) It just utterly failed um, because the evil spirit responded to them saying, I recognize Jesus, and I even know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> you know. And then we know that the evil spirit leaped on those sons and overpowered them and humiliated them. I mean, recognize that when they left the house naked, that is meant to show that they were humiliated. So I would say comical, but maybe a little terrifying. <laughs> maybe a little terrifying. But after that happened, the people of Ephesus recognized it and began to praise the powerful name of Christ as a result. And then this reverent fear of the Lord just falls upon the residents of Ephesus. And those who were believers brought their magic materials. Yeah, I guess we could say their scrolls. And they had some kind of book-burning party, you know. Um, And so Luke is highlighting something important for us to pay attention to. These new believers were so determined to renounce their former life that they were willing to evidence it by burning their items versus selling them. You know, they could have sold them, right? And I read that the value of these items uh, came to about 50,000 days wages. Um, And in today's economy, that would have been about $5 million, right? 
But, and that might be a high estimate in your mind. But no matter how much it is, it just teaches us that as people get saved through the teaching of the gospel, you know, they grow spiritually and they begin to understand what they owe Christ. Um, the debt far outweighs any earthly treasure or former life that we're trying to hold on to. In fact, Jesus tells us if we're to be one of his disciples, we've got to count the cost. You've got to deny self. You've got to pick up your cross and follow him. And if there is anything that's holding you back as a believer from serving Christ with total allegiance, you've got to reject it. Total rejection. He's calling for total allegiance. And that, of course, begs the question, is there anything in your own life that you're continuing to hold on to that is inconsistent with your own following of Jesus Christ? Well, when the true disciples of Christ began to truly count the costs and to follow Christ with full devotion, verse 20 says that the word of God not only spread, but it grew in power. And that takes us to our last point, um, the opposition to the word. So we've learned so far that Paul is faithful to preach the word of God in Ephesus. He stayed for two years. He taught every day. And as a result, God blessed it, allowing it to spread um, from Ephesus throughout, really, the Roman province in Asia Minor. But as we know, like today, being committed to preaching the word accurately with great devotion comes opposition, right? And that's precisely what we see happening in this last section of Acts. And again, can't take the time to read, but um, what we find, basically, is after those miraculous events took place, A silversmith by the name of Demetrius, whose vocation really just involved crafting little, you know, silver shrines of that goddess Artemis that you already saw, he was quite aware. He was quite aware that a revival was happening in the hearts of people. He's no dummy. Um, He had a front row seat to seeing people getting saved and becoming very serious about becoming a Christian, and he noticed that it was having an impact on the society, we got a little taste of that impact, right? When the believers were destroying um, all of their books and everything. And not only that, they began to lose interest in pagan worship, right? So this silversmith uh, was now faced with the reality of his livelihood being in jeopardy. So he responded by doing what many people do today, create a false narrative and create a riot. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Um, we see the, fa- the false narrative actually in verse 27 when he says, and not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be considered as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and all of the world worship, it's even about to be brought down from her majesty. All of Asia, you say? All of the world, you say? So everyone is doing it. Wow, we've got to stop Paul then. We've got to stop this Christianity thing. Well, that narrative that Demetrius started was actually nothing more than fake news. It was fake news because obviously not all of Asia and the world were worshiping Artemis. That's not true. Rather, the word of God was spreading throughout Asia. People were getting saved. And you know what? Demetrius knew it. He knew it. He was in trouble. So he used another tactic that's, that's another tactic that's very common. He stirred up the crowd and began to appeal to their emotions. Um, verse 28 says, When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And the crowd was so stirred up with emotion, they stormed the amphitheater that's pictured right there. We actually, when we were there, we, we said this just to see what it would be like. But anyway, um, and so they, what they did is great as Artemis for two solid hours. Um, this was a highly charged and very emotional scene, so much so that not only did it put the city into a state of confusion, but some of the disciples were fearful for Paul, and they had to hide him away. Um, of course, Paul wanted to be in the middle of everything, but they said, no, we're hiding you away. And, and, you know, it was just too dangerous, and they couldn't let him do that. But understand that a false narrative and an emotional appeal are just such great illustrations of what we mean by herd mentality, right? That's defined as the tendency of people in a group to think and behave in ways that confirm with others in the group rather than with the individuals. I mean, I know it's in there because in verse 32, it says there were people there that didn't even know why they were there. They were just going along with the crowd. It just seemed right to them. But that's exactly what was going on in this moment. And the instigators being self-centered were, were putting their own citizens at risk, for heaven's sakes. And they, they, this guy that, that went forward, he, he, this very brave city clerk stood up and he told them, you, you need to stop. You know, the truth is that, you know, we're going to be accused of a crime here. So you need to stop. Um, you need to do the lawful thing. You need to settle this in court. And so we, we learned that the riot was dismantled. And that seemed to be the affirmation that Paul needed to move on. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to move on now because the riot has ceased. And we learned from Acts 20 verse one that Paul sent for the disciples. And after he encouraged them, he said, farewell. And he's like, I'm out of here. And he left for Macedonia. So in conclusion, I just want to say that Luke is really emphasizing in Acts 19, really just the continued progress of the word. I just want you to understand that. In fact, the spreading of God's word is a major theme in the book of Acts overall. Um, Luke's gospel, if you read it together, highlights the journey of the Lord towards Jerusalem. And in Acts, Luke highlights for us the journey of the word about Jesus away from Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, Samaria, and even into the remotest parts of the earth. As, and also, as has already been mentioned, when we teach the word accurately, God will bless it. And it will grow, and it will become mighty in power. Um, Even when believers like the Apostle Paul or Pastor James Coates or other missionaries you might know in in undisclosed locations um, are being persecuted because it doesn't hinder, no matter what, the spread of God's word. And so, ladies, God is at work. I just want to encourage you with that. God is at work, and I want you to allow this time in Paul's life in Ephesus to motivate you to respond by continuing to engage in the Great Commission work because we're all called to it. And that is making disciples through the sharing of Christ's gospel and teaching others the very things that you've been taught by him. That is your commission. That is your call. All right. Can I pray for you? All right. Father God, we're just so thankful uh, for different narratives in scripture like Acts 19 that show us so clearly, Lord, that you're at work in the hearts of your people. Father God, uh, how your word um, is just so powerful and it can not only lead someone to Christ, but grow them exponentially. And so we saw that in this narrative. We're thankful for that. And Father, as we uh, go off into our individual groups, um, not only do I pray that you would bless the conversation, um, but to really 
um, begin to recognize um, how you work uh, through your people and how your church is being built, day, day, moment by moment, day by day. We're so thankful for that. Lord, we're so grateful um, that in your kindness uh, you have orchestrated um, an opportunity for James Coates to come out of prison. We're so, we're so thankful for that, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in that life. But may the gospel continue to spread exponentially in Canada and even in our own lives. Um, but, Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, and we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.